Kia ora and welcome to the Happy Revolution podcast. My name is Mika and I'm joined by my co-host Rain. Today we chat with Dr. Jim McAloon, a professor in history here at Te Hiringa Waka Victoria University of Wellington. Jim has studied and published about regional New Zealand history, New Zealand political and economic history, and the labour movement in Aotearoa. We chat to Jim about shifts in New Zealand's economic policies, the history of the labour movement, different strands of socialism and politics throughout New Zealand's history, and the church's engagement with the state. Thanks so much for listening. We hope you enjoy this podcast as much as we do. We figured we'd start by asking a bit about your time at Vic. How long have you been lecturing at Vic? What and what drove you to study history and lecture in history? Okay, well, I've been at Vic since the beginning of 2009. Um, before that, I was 15 years at Lincoln University in Canterbury. One of two history lecturers there, which was interesting. It was a lot of fun, really. But I wanted a bigger field, chance to specialise a bit more. So when the job at Vic came up, it was at the right level, career-wise. I was lucky enough to get us, and yeah, I've been here since. And what drove me to history? Interesting question. I suppose the first answer is that I was good at it at school, enjoyed <laughs> it. But the particular things that I'm interested in when I was an undergraduate in the early 80s, um, it seemed to me that, that history uh, was a way of explaining how we got where we are. Um, that was, yeah, things were pretty fraught in, in New Zealand at that time. It was the middle of Muldoon's prime ministership, good deal of right-wing nonsense flying around. Um, yeah, so I think some of the courses that I, that I took at that time sort of helped me think that maybe history does help us ex- explain things. So there's that, but it's also, I think, it's still something I very much enjoy and, and, and think matters. It's a discipline, too, in which conversations with a lot of people are possible. Uh, sometimes that's a bit frustrating, but um, usually it's very rewarding. Can you give us a, a rundown of, like, you just spoke, speaking a bit about Muldoons and some of the shifts that happened in, in that era. Can you give us a rundown of sort of the political and economic history as brief as possible, um, <laughs> leading up until that point or up until now? Well, I think, take it back a bit, um, across most of the Western world, at least from the 1930s, 1940s, you had a particular way of administering um, political economy. I suppose, yeah, you can call it welfare capitalism, you can call it Keynesianism, whatever you want to call it. And it had a lot of faults, a lot of flaws, but it, it also had some advantages. I think the international context of the, that made that possible was changing in the 1970s, and so it was one of those periods of big change. Um, there's a sense in which I think the Muldoon government, um, on one level, was was attempting to maintain a very conservative view of that settlement, a very conservative view of New Zealand's welfare state. Uh, it was also a generational thing, but I think the pressure points in particular, as well as around what New Zealand's economic future would be were also about the the social future and I think on one level you know the the hot button issues were around apartheid and around racism around the Treaty of Waitangi around the alliance with the United States Uh, and they all got swept up into a general feeling that there was a a period of change that things were shifting Muldoon's order was discredited, I think, yeah, by 1984 when, when he famously imbibed a little too freely and, and called an early election. There was a general feeling that things had to change, but the direction of change was uh, perhaps not what a lot of people expected with a good deal of market-led restructuring. 
not entirely. I think there was a, a um, widespread acceptance that some liberalisation was, was likely, but I think what happened with, with the fourth Labour government and then in particular with Ruth Richardson in the early 90s uh, really did, did amount to a complete shift. Um, and there's all sorts of issues around that, about the level to which there was consent for that, the level to which it was necessary, um, whether it was all a master plan or the architects were you know, swept, swept along or responding to events. But it, it did a great deal to change uh, the social and economic fabric. Not everything that happened uh, under the fourth Labour government was bad by any means. Um, I think, again, for whatever whatever the flaws, um, there was a, the beginning of a shift to recognition of Te Tiriti or Waitangi and the beginning of some of those big Waitangi tribunal hearings. I was fortunate enough to be involved as a research assistant with Kaitahu in their claims um, in the late 80s, early 90s, and that was a very significant part of my education as a historian. A rather different perspective on the history of the South Island, to say the least. And as far as what what happened after Muldoon and into the 1980s, early 1990s, it was a long time ago now. It was uh, getting on for 40 years, 1984. And, and my suspicion is, my feeling is, that, that there's, we're about due for another big shake-up. But the problem is, the question is, what is that going to look like? Uh, yeah, you get these big, big waves, yeah, the 1890s, 1930s, 1980s. Yeah, what is the next epoch going to look like? I think we know what it needs to look like, but whether it's going to is another matter. Going back a bit then to the sort of welfare capitalism Keynesian economic structure, can you tell us a bit about what that looked like practically in the lives of, of everyday New Zealanders? Particularly mm. like this is something that I've studied a bit and heard about but was too young to experience. But have heard from people who um, had free tertiary education, for example, and were like, to speak about how, you know, getting a job was not something that was ever really a stress. It was just always like job and education was sort of things that were guaranteed. Is there more to that that you can speak to? Mm, sure. Well, first, I think that when you start talking about the, the welfare state, uh, looking back to the first Labour government of the 1930s and 40s, there's a bit of a discussion among scholars as to how much of a break that first Labour government was, because there were precedents for um, welfare measures before that, of course. But I think the the the, um, the difference is that it was a reasonably coherent programme, a reasonably coherent approach to economic and social policy. And I think the, the key pillars were uh, full employment, but in saying that, uh, full employment for men, um, and so there was always that gendered dimension. Uh, there was a significant commitment to redistribution of wealth and income. Not massive, but enough to ensure a, re a reasonable floor. So, so there were certain assumptions about levels of taxation, about universal entitlement to uh, certain social services and benefits, about transfer payments, which is a technical term for, for welfare payments, and perhaps a classic example is the family benefit from 1946, which was universal, paid to every mother. At the beginning, it was a reasonable sum of money, but it didn't keep up with inflation like so much else. Um, in the New Zealand context, too, there was also a commitment to economic diversification and economic planning. I think a general feeling that 
simply existing as Britain's farm was not going to be desirable forever. For various reasons, that that relationship with Britain persisted into the mid-1950s, but then, then began to change. I think the difference between Labour and national governments, because national dominated politics for most of the post-war period through to 1984, is that for some in the Labour Party at least, it was a, it was a beginning. Uh, for some in the National Party, it was about as far as they were willing to go. And in saying that, I do want to note that uh, the National Party did have, have a rather strong liberal progressive strand at the time, and plenty of ministers were committed to welfare, but perhaps more in terms of the language of a, a floor, um, a hand up, not a handout, however you want to put it. Mm. So that was that, that's really how I'd describe it. But it's important to note too, as, as well as the, the very strong gendered assumptions it was also a regime which assumed certain things about Māori and certain things about Pacifica people and indeed certain things about people with disabilities. So, I mean, I think it was always going to come under social pressure, um, particularly as the new social movements emerged in the 1960s. And, and that's an international thing. That's a challenge for the democratic left across the West. A very fine book called Forging Democracy by Jeff Ely, which is a history of the West European left over the last century and a half. And he makes that point. The old-style social democracy was based on certain assumptions about the working class, about ethnicity, about cultural and social homogeneity, and so forth. I'd be interested to dig more into, like, what were some of the ideological foundations of that welfare capitalism, and then how did those shift? Okay. Yeah, well, that that's part of the story, I guess, of Labour or Social Democratic parties across, yeah. across the West again, that in, in many cases these parties and the German Social Democratic Party, the Swedish classic examples, began as radical Marxist parties, committed to... Uh, a belief in the inevitability of a socialist transition. Um, one of the big shocks for, for the international socialist movement, of course, was 1914, when socialist parties, before the war, had been happily passing resolutions about a general strike to stop the war. And then they all vote for the war, and um, off they go. And um, So then, then you have the, the Bolshevik model mm. in Russia, which is in part, I think, a response to that. After the First World War, it becomes apparent, I think, to many in the parties, the socialist parties in, in the West, that the revolution's not going to come any time soon. And in the view of some, that it is that yeah, the crisis of capitalism is becoming evident, particularly, of course, with the Great Depression, that new ways of, of addressing reform are necessary. This is where Keynes comes in, uh, along with a number of other thinkers, both in England and Scandinavia, um, suggesting theoretical approaches or approaches to economic management based around maintaining sufficient demand, investment, to ensure the virtuous circle of high investment, high demand, high employment, and so round it goes in that virtuous circle. One thing about Keynes, though, he was never tolerant of inflation. The other half of the equation, and, and some of Keynes's critics don't admit this, the other half of the equation was to damp down in times of boom so that you try and maintain stability. Anyway, the Keynesian approach, I think, gave Social Democrats uh, a toolbox, and the Swedish and the New Zealand Labour parties were early movers in the 1930s for a variety of reasons. Um... 
Other Labour parties came along later. As far as the philosophical or ideological dimensions are concerned, I think part of it is that it's not simply technocratic. It's not simply um, a good way of managing the economy. I think there was very much a moral dimension to it. It was very much a view that um, economics should be at the service of society. There's one line from Walter Nash, for instance, where he says, um, if technological change means people are put out of employment, then it is the task of government, of um, policymakers, to ensure that uh, the economy is so structured that they can have other jobs. It was also, I think, and again to quote Nash, that security was a big part of it, mm-hmm. to provide stability and security, but not as an end in itself. Um, Nash believed that if you did that, then then people would lose the reasons for not working for the common good. So it was very much a moral vision. And I think that needs to be remembered. Um, Harold Wilson in the United Kingdom has a bit of a bad reputation, but he did say that you know, the Labour movement is a moral movement or it is nothing. And and I think that, that, that part of it is there. Sure, it's about um, technical matters. Sure, it's about modernising an economy, and I think that's always been part of it for social democratic parties, but it's also about social justice in the end. Does much of that um, moral vision play into the shift out of Keynesian economics as well, like in terms of, I know there are some sort of biblical narratives that sort of suffused that discussion with, in in New Zealand particularly, where there was sort of like a discussion of, of on one side, we're in this oppressive Keynesian Egypt and the neoliberal thinkers will lead us out like Moses, but then on the, the other hand of like, we're in the Garden of Eden and... Um, Roger Douglas is the serpent trying to tempt us. Look, I, I wrote a book about 10 years ago called Judgments of All Kinds, which mm. was about economic policy making in New Zealand from 1945 to 84. And among other things, I had two audiences there. To the right wing, I wanted to say, uh, please try and understand why things were done as they were in the post-war decades. It wasn't all misguided and there were often good reasons. And to the left, I wanted to say, please stop this nostalgia trip. You know, please stop regarding this this society as a lost Eden because things did change. Um, the international underpinnings of it did, did shift. As for the language of morality and the shift in the 1980s, um, to an extent, yes, Roger Douglas and some of his colleagues talked about the language of privilege and to an extent they had a point. Certain sectors in the political economy had achieved a good deal of influence and a good deal of privilege. Um, Farmers might be an example, so might um, protected manufacturers. They could take it too far. I don't think the language of moral crusade in New Zealand was anything like as evident as it was in the case of Margaret Thatcher, um, who really was driven by a particular moral vision, which she, in fact, expressed in religious terms, reflecting her um, lower-middle-class Methodist background, uh, which is, of course, not the only approach that Methodism brings to these questions, but but I don't think you you could separate Thatcher from her Methodist upbringing. You've already touched on the moral implications of the economic structures and the different phases of that throughout New Zealand's history. Could you speak to how Christianity has engaged with the various political policies throughout New Zealand's history? 
and what has been the outcomes for both the church and the state, or how have those two things interacted with each other and shaped each other? Well, that, that's a big one. <laughs> I, I take it you, you, uh, you're thinking not just of economic and social policy, but other issues as well. Because mm. there's, there's a huge range, isn't there? I can start yeah. with economic history, I think, because there's some really interesting... Um, like, res- have been some really interesting responses from the church in New Zealand to, like, the shift from neoliberal. I remember a Catholic cardinal calling Ruth Richardson's policies a creed of greed or something to that effect. Um, and there were a lot of responses like that from various different denominations. So, But also even before that, back in the kind of, like, the applied Christianity model, back with Joseph... What's his name? Michael Joseph Savage. Michael Joseph, Joseph Savage, yeah. <laughs> yeah, but even even half a century before that, Rutherford Wardell in Dunedin preaching on the sin of cheapness. Yeah. So, yeah, there is that moral critique from, want of a better word, the progressive side of Christianity. And it often does emphasise the you know, the rights of all to a decent living. Uh, it emphasises the rights of the modestly paid to, to reasonable comfort, the duties of those with more to not only, I think, dispense charity, but to ensure just economic structures. And I think that's a crucial difference. In terms of conservative, more conservative views of the relationship between Christian faith and economics, I think the emphasis would be on around ideas of self-reliance, and and perhaps I mean I mentioned Thatcher, and perhaps that was part of her approach, but in the New Zealand context, I think Jack Marshall was always a very good example, the National Party politician in the nineteen sixties, and I think that liberal conservatives like him. Perhaps a key text for them is that this in 2 Thessalonians where Paul is rebuking people who sit around all day not doing any work and interfere with everybody else. And so there, there is that, that obligation in, in the mind, and I don't think only of conservatives either, but yeah, I think that, that theme is there and in the approach. In terms of the progressive... Christian thinking about economics and particularly about poverty and economic justice. If there's one weakness, perhaps, it's that critique is easy. Mm. Um, Alternatives are much more difficult. And um, I think it was Tom Williams would have been the cardinal in question back yeah. in, in the uh, in the early 1990s. Richardson might well have said, "Well, okay, what's your alternative?" And so I think, yeah, there's a place for critique, and I don't think necessarily Christians or the church should be too prescriptive. Certainly I would never say that there is only one approach that a Christian can or should take. Mm. All I can say is, I think what anyone would say is, this is how I see it, informed by faith, but there's plenty of other ways of looking at things. That said, to not at least encourage discussion of, of alternatives, does leave a gap. Um, critique can be insufficient, I think is, is the point I'm trying to make on that. So in terms of other social issues, I think, yeah, the range is huge. The consequences? Well, the increasing association in the public mind of Christian faith with conservative positions on sexuality, on alcohol on other things like that. Partly I think it's it's because this is a convenient stereotype, but I think it's because that, that approach has, has taken up much more 
space in the last 30, 40 years. And, and that, I don't think, has done, done the church the churches much good at all. Um, particularly, I think, in my own community, the, the Catholic Church, I think you know, there's, a, there's a huge lack of credibility now about anything around sexuality mm. and gender. Um, there was even before the sexual abuse crisis exploded, but that's just reinforced it. On the progressive side, campaigns around anti-racism, about peace, disarmament, have all been important, and I think there's been some really significant contributions from Christians in those areas, and this goes back well over a century now. Mm. Um, but most particularly, I think, in the wake of World War II, uh, with the real potential for um, a completely devastating war, I think that there has been a really significant moral voice in there that the war needs to be rethought. In terms of anti-apartheid, anti-racism, that was significant um, because apartheid ostensibly relied upon Christian justification. Um, in this country, issues around Tiriti or Waitangi were necessarily related to the churches because of the presence of missionaries around around the the, um, the treaty mm. and the discussions. I think one consequence for the churches, in particular around utility and decolonisation and so forth in Aotearoa has been that the churches, some at least, have been required to think themselves about how they do things. And the Anglican Church would be the best example of that, I think. Um, others, including my own, are way behind. Um, so often there is reflection on, um, in, in fact, an invitation to take the plank out of one's own eye. In terms of, of current issues, um, the ecological crisis, there's there's a lot of very important thinking going on there. I think perhaps there the most important contribution that the churches make is to say that it is fundamentally a moral issue. It's fundamentally about ethics. Um, we can talk about technology all we like. Technology without ethics has it has has problems. And I think that language of ethics um, is evident in two of the most important papal statements of the last 70 years. One, John XXIII's Peace on Earth, Parchment Terrace, 1962, 63, 63, the year after the Cuba crisis. And then Pope Francis's Laudato Si uh, in 2015. And in both cases, addressing you know critical issues for humanity, they they are saying and they are you know, expounding a whole body of doctrine here. These are moral issues. For me too, and especially with Laudato Si, I wanted to acknowledge and emphasise that for for a Christian, at least for for a Catholic, it, it it's imperative to realise that we do not have a monopoly on these ethical perspectives. Some of the the best and most committed people I know to ecological and social justice come from non-religious but deeply ethical, deeply principled backgrounds. And I, I think there's almost a sense in which, you know, reading Laudato Si, yes, this is great, but we're a little bit late to the party. Yeah. Come on! <laughs> <laughs> so it's, there's, there's that tension there. But again, it invites us, um, challenges us as churches to think about how we do things. Uh, so, yeah, I think there, there is that, that that very helpful and important dimension. Yeah, that's really interesting. So there's so many different issues in which various denominations have been in, involved. Um, do you see, in terms of the credibility of church voice, do you see that that has 
declined greatly over the course of New Zealand's history, like to the, the sort of impact that ch- the church has in politics? Or do you think that there's still like a really strong moral voice that can be brought to those issues by the church? I think this comes back to what we were talking about just just a few moments ago, the association in the public mind of religious perspectives with conservative positions on economics and on social questions. So I think that other church voices have tended to diminish. And on one level, I think that's unfortunate. But on another level... It's perhaps not such a bad thing because I don't regard it as a problem that um, a majority of the the population in this country now do not express a religious affiliation. That's honest. um, And I've certainly never thought that um, there should be any particular privilege for for Christian voices in political or social issues. So I guess the, the credibility has to be earned. And it has to be earned, I think, by closeness to one's communities. And perhaps one very good example where this is earned, where where one can see this, is in the living wage movement, which uh, is explicitly organised on the basis of a coalition between trade unions, community groups and faith communities. And so a number of of those in the faith communities in particular come out of an an embeddedness in their own community in advocating for the living wage, and they know what what their people are experiencing in terms of low incomes. So I think um, the right to be heard has to be earned by, by credibility, by consistency, by authenticity, but also by um, doing your homework and making arguments that can be sustained. And again, that comes back to a a point that I I think I was trying to make a little while ago, that sometimes critique is easy, but um, if if there's no no way ahead, then I'm not sure that the critique gets us very far. Mm. Mind you, that's a problem with a lot of people on the secular left as well. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. But were you, were you wanted to go into the yeah, the labour movement? Yeah. Do you have any anything else you'd like to add to the kind of this chunk of the conversation? Well, I think one one thing that I did, uh, Peter and I divided the, the draft of the labour book up, and then we swapped drafts and critiqued each other. But I think <laughs> one, one thing that I wanted to and came increasingly to want to emphasise was that Christian socialist strand in the movement. And I, I wasn't the only or the first person to do that. I think Barry Gustafsson made a, made a good job of it in his work many, many years ago now. But I wanted to give it a fresh emphasis, partly, I think, because of this phenomenon of decreased identification of progressive politicians with religious faith. Other than the Māori and Pacifica caucuses in the Labour Party, I'm not sure how much religion there is. Mm-hmm. And this is this is something that's interesting and, well, on one level I would love it if there were a few churchgoers just to, to even up the perception. But I did want to say that this is part of the heritage, part of the background, and it is important, and it stands alongside other parts which I also value and think are equally important, like the ethical socialism of the Independent Labour Party out of the United Kingdom, like the Marxists um, around Harry Holland, like the, the old Red Feds, but it's all part of the part of the coalition of perspectives. Mm. 
But I think I also wanted to emphasise that it was not only the, quote, moderates in the movement that were Christians. I think the most left-wing member of Savage's cabinet was Tim Armstrong, who was a Catholic. Uh, he was the father of the 40-hour week and apparently also the last minister to be persuaded that conscription would be acceptable in 1940. So he and I think Dan Sullivan, who was also a Christchurch Catholic, had some very interesting ideas about economic development and, and about diversification. Um, so I, I kind of wanted to foreground that, and perhaps it was also just what I was thinking about in, in, in other contexts as well. So that's there, but again, I, I wanted to emphasise too that it was a, a coalition where people came from different perspectives to the same answer. Uh, and I think that's a real strength. Um, it's also saved the New Zealand Labour Party mostly from the appalling splits that the Australians have had, where right-wing Catholics tore the Labour Party apart in the 1950s and kept it out of office for, for 20 years. Um, that's another story. But I think I, I would say that the, the Christian socialist strand is there. It's important, but it's never been dominant. Mm. Yeah. And the the first Labour government that clearly, as you're saying, there's a lot of Christians within that. Was that sort of a general feature of society at the time, being more religious, or was that part of that Christian strand of socialism that you're talking about? That's one of the big arguments of religious studies scholarship in New Zealand. Mm. How religious was New Zealand back in the day? Um, how many people went regularly to church and... Um, Alison Clark's done some very good work on that, and so has John Stenhouse. I think what was more important, or as important, was that religious language was understood. Uh, and this is a point that my, my old professor Tom Brooking makes for the 1890s as well. The language of the Bible was widespread. People knew it and understood it, even if they didn't go to, go to church very often. Mm. I think it was partly a way of claiming a bit of credibility, um, you know, Savage's line about applied Christianity was certainly claiming respectability for, for social welfare. Um, in the 1940s, Sid Holland emphasised or said that the National Party was very much based upon Christian principles as well. So I think it was a, it was a, a dimension of respectability that could be claimed. But I think it was also, regardless of religious practice, I think then as now, plenty of trade union and labour activists came out of religious backgrounds. And even if they didn't continue to, to um, adhere to religious practice, the ethics was still there. Now, you still see that now. The trade union movement's still full of lapsed Catholics. Um, and I think um, there's a brilliant line from the British Labour PM, Clement Attlee, that, that as far as religion was concerned, he liked the ethics, wasn't so keen on the mumbo-jumbo. <laughs> so you get that, yeah. What were some of the big shifts that led to the rise of the Labour movement and then the Labour Party? OK. Well, you get a wave of formation of trade unions in the 1880s as New Zealand settler society becomes a bit more urban, uh, as manufacturing begins to take off, as the resource-based industries become more developed, shearing, meatworks, that sort of thing. Um, so on one level, when you get working people coming together, you will get trade unions. It's as simple as that. There are all sorts of questions about the relationship of trade unions in the state and how they're allowed to organise, how they manage to organise. Um, 
in New Zealand, I think there was always in, in settler society, and again, I have you know, find myself increasingly emphasising this, that we're, this is a, a, a Pākehā history in many ways, mm-hmm. uh, at that time at least, there is always that dimension of egalitarianism and of the desire for equal, for, for equal opportunity. Some people call it the settler contract. If you work work hard, you should be able to get ahead. But there is also a dimension of collective values there, and you can find traces of that way back into the 1840s. Um, so the particular expression they have with mm-hmm. the development of political democracy with you know, uh, one man, one vote in 1890 and then universal suffrage in 93, you essentially get a class coalition emerging of small farmers, small proprietors and business people and working class voters. And that's the Liberals. And that coalition holds together for a number of years and part of the, the payoff is that the trade unions get legal recognition and status through the arbitration system. It's incredibly easy to organise a trade union and to get a, a court judgment giving you um, statement of wages, hours and conditions. Not too long, though, before the elements in the trade union movement begin to wish for more recognition, more status, particularly in the workplace, and begin to criticise the limits of the liberal settlement, which in any case is beginning to fall apart as farmers become more conservative and workers become, in some cases, more radical. So that gives rise to a radical push and a big shake-up in the labour movement, as well as with the discussion of syndicalist and socialist and Marxist thinking, which is you, you, you have a big ideological shake-up in parts of the labour movement immediately before and during the First World War. And the, the, the global crisis that is the First World War has its consequences too. To simplify matters greatly, a critical attitude to the war and particularly to conscription pushed people one way and that was significant in the formation of the New Zealand Labour Party. A more positive uh, or respectful attitude toward the empire perhaps pushed some working class liberals out of the Labour movement. There's, there's examples of that. Um, but then you have the, the, the dimension that we were talking about before of the shift from the politics of protest to a, a Keynesian-style approach, which is about achievable reform. And that's f- struggled with in the New Zealand Labour Party through the 1920s and into the early 1930s. And that's also when key figures in the movement, particularly Harry Holland, the leader through the 1920s, and some of Tahu Portiki Willemu Ratana's um, supporters, especially Rangi Mafeti from, uh, I think, up near Fielding, start to discuss the relationship between Labour and Māori, and especially, of course, in the context of the Ratana movement, the, the hahi, the church, um, becoming a force. So that's a significant, although far from unproblematic, dimension in the history of, of the labour movement in New Zealand as well. Essentially, I think yeah, the, the Ratana figures 
took the view that it was it was the best alliance they could hope for. But Richard Hill, our colleague here at Vic, has said very truly that uh, for Savage and Fraser, uh, they were perfectly comfortable with um, the equality implied in Article 3. They couldn't get their heads around um, autonomy or self-determination, tenorangatiratanga, in Article 2. And that would be an enduring problem uh, for, for decades, for many decades. Mm. You, you mentioned like these different strands within the labour movement with red feds and Marxists and Christian socialists. What were some of the dominant or more dominant strands and what were some of the disagreements that they had within the movement? And then how did they resolve those sure. if they did? Again, these, these controversies are really evident from about 1905 onward. Um, a lot of people know about the Black Ball Strike and the Red Feds, um, where the, the miners on the West Coast adopt a particularly radical approach to organisation, taking the view that parliamentary politics is really a waste of time, it will co-opt labour figures uh, into the system, and that the way ahead is a mass-based trade union movement organised one industry, one union at the point of production, using that power to negotiate directly with employers and in the end to make a transition, make, make a socialist transition. I mean, that red-fed narrative is very compelling and they had some really good propagandists and some, some great stories, not least about the Black Ball strike itself, the demand for a 30-minute lunch break. They were in contention with two other groups, broadly speaking. One was a moderates, the usual word, group who recognised the advantages that the alliance with the Liberals had had brought and were sceptical about breaking uh, away from the relationship with the Liberal Party. But there was another group which is perhaps less... Um, recognised, but that's the radical skilled workers in um, the first Labour parties, as they were called before 1916, and they were committed to socialism, but their view was that it needed to be achieved by parliamentary methods, that you build a parliamentary majority for socialism, and then once you've got that, you go for it. They spent a lot of time arguing, more time arguing with each other than with the bosses it sometimes seemed. <laughs> Christians were involved in both sides, all sides, and perhaps tended to, yeah, to be a little bit less evident in the red feds, but not entirely. Yeah, what pushed them together? Two things, two stages. In 1912, the great strike at Waihee, which ended after five months in a, in a police riot and the, the beating to death of a striker, Fred Evans, that provoked the radical parliamentary socialists and the Red Feds to come together. But that left the more moderate and local-based elements out of the new Social Democratic Party. What brought them in was conscription in 1916, when the second New Zealand Labour Party was established um, on the basis of opposition to a good deal of the prosecution of the war, and particularly conscription. So that that was that, that's a short version of the main strands, and they were those those those. Um, degrees of emphases were still evident, I think, in 1935. Yeah, people came from different backgrounds. Walter Nash was always seen as the, the moderate Christian socialist. Peter Fraser and Savage himself came out of radical red-fed backgrounds. But, of course, a lot of water had gone under the bridge by then. 
Yeah. Um, and another topic I wanted to touch on a bit was political parties. So with the rise of the Labour Party, we sort of saw the end of a couple of other major parties like Reform and Liberal that had dominated up until that point, and then the rise of National, and then that's sort of been um, a tension that's existed since. And then we've had other parties come up like Social Credit and Act and Greens and Alliance. What have been some shifts that have led to the sort of rise and fall of political parties, mm. do you think? Um, largely, I think the way in which social groups, um, particularly class-based groups, for want of a, a better word, have, have changed and developed. I mean, we've said enough about the shaping of the Labour Party. In the end, I think liberal and reform came to be very much like each other. Uh, there wasn't much difference except, except personalities and a few other things like that. Um, they were both based around a unity of rural and urban property and the respectable middle class, the professional and respectable middle class. And so the, the, the formation of the National Party in 1936 was entirely logical and out of those two, and indeed the only thing some people might have wondered about was why it took so long. So yeah, you have that. As long as the two big parties controlled more than about 85% of the vote, you had a stable two-party system. And that's, that's something that's important. The, the, yeah, the parties and electoral systems are in a dynamic relationship with each other. Social credit, I think, in many respects, was kind of a forerunner of New Zealand First. Its constituency was rural, provincial conservatives, social conservatives. On a bad day with the, with the dash of the same sort of conspiracy theories that, that uh, New Zealand First can sometimes trade in. But to take a positive view of them, yeah, a certain constituency, a certain part of the part of the population, which is perhaps um, provincial, and I don't mean that in a pejorative sense, believes, I think, in has a certain sort of nostalgic view of New Zealand's society. I won't say monocultural, but perhaps has a yeah a feeling about about a some certain a certain homogeneity, let's say. So that, that's, that's um, social credit slash New Zealand first. Greens come out of the new social movements of the, the 1960s, 1970s. And again, that's a demographic. The Values Party, of course, were the forerunners. And um, a number of key Greens politicians had been in values. So there's a, there's a, a pretty good transition from there. Once the two-party system breaks up and once... The governing party no longer can claim a solid mandate of the votes, and that started to happen from 1978 when Labour got 10,000 more than national, but um, was 10 seats behind. Yeah, uh, there was a bit of gnashing of teeth over yeah. that. But um, once that starts to happen, you then had proportional representation on the agenda, massively reinforced by protest and disappointment at what both Longy and Douglas and Bolger and Richardson had done in terms of campaigning one way and then governing in a, in a, in a rather different fashion from what people have expected. So proportional representation was promoted as a way of bringing consensus to politics and of restraining the power of the executive. But with the beginning of a proportional system, then you are basically you know, opening the door to more niche parties, and that's fine. I mean, ACT is, if you like, the ideological hard line of the National Party. 
the alliance New Labour could have been that to the Labour Party um, for various reasons it fell apart. Um, Māori Party, of course, again, with proportional representation, Māori voters can do both. They can have have significant voices in the Labour Party, sometimes in the National Party, as they did under uh, under John Key, but also there is now space for a separate Māori Party. And again, don't forget, Matiurata tried that with Mana Motohake in the 1980s. So I think there, there was a realignment over a couple of decades. Social groups, who's the support base, is always the question for, for the shaping of a party, but also the way in which the political system, the, the voting system, is structured. That, that's also important. Given some of the patterns across New Zealand's history, who do you think will be next to fall? It would... Perhaps I could only speak of what I would like to see rather than what I think will happen. New Zealand first comes and goes. On one level, I would be happy if there was a more coherent centrist party with which, yeah, without the, um, the, the lashings or the overtones of xenophobia that New Zealand First sometimes trades in and the the populism. I would also very much like to see a socialist party to the left of Labour that was viable in Parliament. I think I'd hoped the alliance would have been that. It turned out not to be. Because I think, and others have, have said this too, I think the Greens on one level position themselves to the left of Labour, but on another level I'm not sure that they are quite... Um, that be that as it may, I think the Greens will stay. They're consistent. Act will stay. There's, that's a, that's again though that that reminds us that there was a bit of opportunism in there where the National Party ensured Act's parliamentary survival by yeah for a number of elections by letting them have Epsom. So um, having said that, the social bases and the voting system. There's also how people play the voting system, and that's again not pejorative. Systems are there to be used. So. Mm. You know, you've got you've got your objectives, and you do your best to achieve them. Mm. You've talked a lot about how the Labour Party was born out of the Labour movement with unions and so forth. I don't know if this is your area of expertise, but I'd be interested in knowing how the Labour movement has changed over the last century, particularly with the rise of neoliberalism in the eighties, and then what that movement looks like today. Yeah, I, I, I can I can have a go at answering that. It was strong in parts from the eighteen eighties. Um, from 1894 until the 1980s, the arbitration system dominated, and that meant that, as I said before, that it was relatively easy to register a trade union and secure some legal recognition. So that that meant a reasonably high level of union coverage, particularly before the First World War. Not so great during the 1920s, early 30s, when econ- economic times were difficult. Then in 1936. Excuse me. The first Labour government legislated compulsory unionism, which basically meant that any worker who was in an occupation that was covered by an award of the arbitration court had to be in the relevant union. Now, the the argument advanced in favour of that was that it meant that unions were predictable, well resourced, and there was no freeloading. The arguments against from um, a liberal perspective were that it, it was contrary to freedom of association. And from a socialist perspective, was that it created a whole lot of well-paid union bureaucrats who had absolutely no interest at all in a mass movement. 
again, it worked on, you know, with, with some qualifications for the nearly 50 years until Bolger abolished compulsory unionism in 1984 as Minister of Labour. Um, the National Party had always campaigned on a promise to do so, and they'd found good reasons for not doing so in terms of stability and knowing that, that things could be nutted out with the, the, the leadership of the FOL. During the 60s and 70s, in a climate of economic change, unions, many became more assertive. 1951 had been a defeat. The waterfront lockout had been a defeat for the radicals in, in the union movement. They rebuilt in the context of inflation, unemployment, economic difficulty. Unions became rather more assertive from the late 60s through to the 1980s. The fourth Labour government tried to rationalise the union movement, restoring compulsory membership, but requiring unions to be of a certain minimum rather large size. The idea was that unions would then be sufficiently resourced from, from their own resources to play a partnership role in economic management. And at that time, too, the division between the state and the private sector unions was largely overcome with the formation of the Council of Trade Unions, which was a merger of the old Federation of Labour and the combined state unions. And that was a reshaping of the movement, and it's still controversial in some parts of the movement today, as also is the question of how the CTU responded to the Employment Contracts Act in 1991, which very considerably weakened the union movement. It cut union coverage by well over half in, in a few years, and that had catastrophic effects upon wages and on conditions. What has happened in the last decade or so is rebuilding, and that has partly been new ways of doing it. The largest private sector union now is Ed2, which goes back to the engineers, manufacturers, but brought the service workers and others in. So that's a very, very significant part of the movement. But there's also the models espoused by Unite and First, which are based around looking to enrol workers in whatever sorts of industries are not traditionally well covered. And that's a new model which is having its impact. But also I think in the last few years with relatively high employment, naturally the strength of unions has increased a little bit. The other big shift uh, historically, and this would be over the last 50-odd years, is the increasing assertiveness of unions in occupations that once wouldn't have been de seen dead in trade unions, and that's nurses and teachers and white-collar workers in, in particular. But that reflects all sorts of changes in the workplace and expectations, I think, of governments and social service provision too. So interesting. Nurses and teachers, those unions seem to be very loud and in the last 40 or 50 years, yeah. yeah, before that, not. And, I mean, the names are still instructive. It's the PPTA, the post Private Teachers Association, and the New Zealand Educational Institute. And, indeed, yeah, my own union is now the Tertiary Education Union. Mm. Once upon a time, it was the Association of University Teachers. Again, association, which is much more polite and, uh, dare I say, gentlemanly. Yeah. In light of some of the stuff that we've talked about, and some of your your research into the sort of political and economic history of New Zealand. What are some things that give you hope for the future? What I see every month in my 
occupation as as an academic, as a teacher. And what I mean by that is is the students, most of whom are young, not all. That's fundamental. Um, I've been in the job for more than 30 years. Um, that hope has not changed. I think that's that's the first thing. I think the other thing is that I see it in, in little things like the annual cycle of a vegetable garden, um, you know, from poured beans to leeks and back again, that sort of thing. I see it in, in the natural environment. And I see it in the way in which people do come together to address big issues with goodwill. Um, and it's sometimes it's two steps forward, one step back, but it's still it's still there. I think was it was it Martin Luther King who said that the arc of history does bend to justice, even if it takes a little detour from time to time. So that's that's a that's a short answer. I mean I, I think um, there are other dimensions of hope which are less easy to express in words but I, I think on one level for me being part of a faith community is an exercise in hope. Can I ask what you mean by that? That last sentence? Yeah I, I hadn't thought of that before I said it. Um, <laughs> yeah I think it's a, an acknowledgement that there is something deeper than ourselves. Now, I won't say power, you want to call it the divine or the Almighty or God or whatever, but yeah, I think it's an acknowledgement that there is that there is there is something something deeper than ourselves mm. and yeah. I also find hope in some of the classic writings of the tradition. I was asked a little while ago which which parts of the scriptures particularly appeal to me, and it was a sort of a, a combination of the wisdom writings about um, or the the wisdom influenced speeches and some of the gospels, like you know. So don't, don't worry about what, what you're going to eat or what you're going to wear. You know, look at the birds, but also the imperatives in some of the prophetic texts. That I think the the hope there is that these imperatives have been part of the human condition for a very long time, and, and we keep. Uh, we keep trying, if that makes sense. Another question that we always ask people who come on here is, what is your most controversial opinion? And what we usually mean by that is, if you were in a room with a group of other people from your field, what is something you'd likely disagree with them about? I would not say perhaps controversial so much as distinctive, okay. uh, because I know that in the relatively small world that is New Zealand history academics, I've got a got a, a bit of a reputation for for going on about class. <laughs> I teach an honours course in it, but I've always been, or sometimes I've said probably facetiously, that, that in some ways I'm an unreconstructed second international Marxist. And I am. I mean, that is um, fundamentally the Marxist approach to class makes a whole lot of sense to me. It has been moderated by teaching, but fundamentally I guess that would be one thing where I am distinctive. Whether I'm the only Marxist historian in New Zealand or even can claim to be one, I don't know, but <laughs> that's one thing I'd say. And the other thing that, that is a little bit distinctive in a field which for the last 20, 30 years has been strongly cultural is that I like numbers. Not on any complicated basis, but if I'm talking about migration, I want to know how many people are we talking about. Um, not just reading their letters and getting a sense of their, their nostalgia for, for old Ireland or whatever. So that's something else where I'm just a little bit distinctive. When you say 
unreconstructed second international Marxist. Can you explain a little bit more what that means? Okay. Well, basically, it means that I think Marxist categories around class are sensible and helpful. And the Marxist proposition that class is about economic resources, Mm. it's about the ownership or not of economically productive property, and that the conflicts and relationships generated around those questions of ownership are incredibly important. I don't say that they're deterministic, but it's actually a little bit like what Eric Olin Wright, who, who is one of my favourite Marxist sociologists, said in, in one of his one of his books that he continued to call himself a Marxist, partly because he didn't want to get too comfortable. He didn't want to say, oh yes, of course, Marx is very influential. Marx is, I think, of great stature. He wanted to say, yeah, damn it, I'm a Marxist. And I don't always say that, but, but yeah, sometimes it's there, if you know what I mean. I'm a sociology student and we learn a lot about Marx. It goes on and on about Marx. <laughs> well, I'm encouraged. <laughs> yeah. Because, I mean, just, yeah, I, I still think it's an incredibly valuable tradition. And, yeah, I still think it's rewarding. And one of the best undergraduate papers I did was a whole year reading Das Kapital. Wow. It, it was incredible. That's a big, big thing to dive into. It was. Yeah. Well, I think we've tried to read it. We- can't get very far. <laughs> yeah. Well, I had a very good teacher, um, a South African fellow called Rob Stephen, who was kind of legendary at the time. <laughs> yeah, well, that leads quite nicely to our next question, which is what were some books that have been formational for you? And are there any that you would recommend? Okay, well, uh, in terms of history, absolutely formational uh, is E.P. Thompson's The Making of the English Working Class. 1963, Thompson was part of that incredibly important group of historians around the Communist Party of Great Britain. And The Making is about 900 pages long. It covers the period 1790 to 1832. And it's widely regarded as an incredible example, both of Marxist-inspired history, history from below, and history with a moral passion. So, yeah, that's one. The other thing that's pretty foundational, just about anything by Thomas Merton, I have a whole shelf. Um, and again, that's a legacy of, of, of when I was an undergraduate, I was introduced to him. Another very rich, very complex thinker, not always right, not always consistent, but but fundamental. Catholic um, thinker? Yeah, he was a Trappist yeah. monk. Yes, yes. Yeah, in Kentucky. His father was a New Zealander, actually, a, a painter called Owen. But, yeah, there's plenty of others, but, I mean, generally in spiritual reading terms, I, I do very much like Cistercian, Trappist-influenced writers. So those are two that I'd pick. Yeah. yeah. I haven't read a lot of Thomas Merton, but I'd like to. It's on my list. It's a lot. Yeah. <laughs> Probably want to start in the 60s and work back. That's good to know. Yes. I'm a fan of the Trappist monks. They brew great beer. They do. <laughs> do they really? Yes, yes, yeah. yes. As a part of their spiritual life. It is, because part of the, the rule of St. Benedict is that monks and nuns are supposed to support themselves by their own work. And particularly in Belgium, the Trappist monasteries have made a great thing about brewing, brewing good beer. Yeah. That's wonderful. That's <laughs> well, thank you so much. Thank for, you so much for your time. Yeah, thank you. Joining us. It's been great to hear about all of these various topics. You're welcome. It was nice to have a chat. <laughs>